0: Last week, uh, we considered the French Revolution, the type of the great apostasy. We took a quick look at that. Before we con- continue today, let's quickly consider uh, uh, three important points. First, uh, please don't think that these two sermons are in any way a complete or comprehensive discussion of the important foreshadowings found during this historical period. And uh, not only that, but in my ignorance, I may very well have focused on more trivial aspects. So that's first. Second, Remember that when we're done, at best, we're only going to be left in a more luminous darkness. Prophecy is only completely understood in its fulfillment. Uh, Third, the Holy Father, uh, Benedict XVI, told an audience in St. Peter's Square just a couple uh, Sundays ago, November 18th, that Christians should not be caught up in apocalyptic prophecies and worries about the end of the world. Quote, let us have no fear for the future, even when it appears dark and gloomy. Let us accept Christ's invitation to face daily events trusting in his providential love. Close quote, the Vicar of Christ. So there we have the Holy Father saying, uh, you know, don't worry. Uh, I'll just, parenthetically, where we're on this, thinking about worry. You know, one of the great things about Mass is it's an official deal. God officially will listen to us here. That's one of the unbelievable things. I mean, maybe we're used to it, but it ought to astonish us that he'll actually listen to what we have to ask him. One of the important things, you get to ask him for mercy and I mean, you're doing it. I am too. But in the Kyrie eleison, there's two, in the beginning of Mass, then, no. that's, you're asking God the Father, the first three Kyries, it's Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, that's asking God the Father, then it's Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, and that's God the Son, obviously, and Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, you're asking God the Holy Ghost. At the end of Mass, at the Agnus Dei, you're saying it in Latin, so the first part's in Greek, and then in Latin, Miserere Nobis, you're asking Him to have mercy on us. For what? Well, if you don't have intentions, give them my intentions. But there's all kinds of intentions, you know? My intentions, the bishop's intentions, the Holy Father's intentions, your intentions. We need him to have mercy. We ought to be lifting the roof off for this. I'm not going to change the words, guaranteed, okay? And it's, it's going to be that same way. Every Sunday, you ought to be lifting the roof off this because it's, it's really a serious prayer. St. Augustine says, he who sings prays twice. Why is that? Because it, it's because of a greater sacrifice uh, you know, the breath is seen as breath of life. It's like a great. We're, we're given more of our life when we sing. We're belting it out. Don't worry if you don't sing well. Like Chesterton says, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. We're not worried about that. The thing is, we're praying to God to have mercy on us. So, uh, don't don't sweat that. And I promise you, we're not going to change the words. And we're not going to change the melody. It's just going to be fixed. So you don't have to worry about that part. You should know it by heart. It's good and it really helps. So if you're worried about this or any other things, there's your opportunity. So at the Agnes Day, you'll get it again. Anyway. Having said that, when we ended last week, we saw that the revolutionaries had, quote, left France, France bled white, ruined, and ready to surrender to the first Savior who should present himself. And so today we'll take a quick look at that man. Remember, every time, both in Scripture and then we look at the different types when it's fulfilled. First, you have an apostasy, this, this great catastrophe in society, And then you have this man of sin, the type of the Antichrist, come in. Okay? Today we'll take a quick look at the man, type of the Antichrist. At the age of 16, he's a lieutenant in artillery. Age of 20, the revolution broke out at 24. He's a general. 26, commander-in-chief of the Army of Italy. 30, the First Council of the French Republic. 35, the Emperor of the French. A man who, quote, became convinced that violence settles everything that nothing can stand against it as he said I reign through the fear I inspire a man who was the greatest military genius to appear since Alexander the Great a man who intended to conquer the world and almost did close quote That man, of course is Napoleon Bonaparte Napoleon is such a giant figure that this morning we're just gonna have to whittle it down we only have time to briefly consider two features of his personality We'll consider his religious views and we'll consider his lust for power. So, Napoleon's religious views. Although Napoleon was baptized Catholic, he was far from practicing the faith. Quote, As a lieutenant, Napoleon read many of the philosophers of his time, particularly Rousseau. These studies left him attached to a sort of deism, an admirer of the personality of Christ, a stranger to all religious practices, and breathing defiance, "...against the priesthood and theocracy. His attitude under the Revolution was that of a citizen devoted to the new ideas." Close quote. short, Napoleon had the attitude typical of a Freemason of his time. Although it's not clear whether he himself was a, a Freemason or not, he certainly was very closely associated with the Lodge. In fact, his emperor he appointed one of his brothers as a grandmaster of the Grand Orient Lodge of France, Another one of his blood brothers is a deputy grandmaster, another of the grandmaster of the Grand Orient Westphalia Lodge. Here's Napoleon summarizing his own religious beliefs. Quote, all religions have been made by men. Worse yet, quote, if I had to choose a religion, the son as the universal giver of life would be my God. Close quote. His attitude as a ruler was that religion was useful as long as it was helpful and tolerant but it was dangerous if it would lead to extremism or fanaticism. In spite of his own personal beliefs, or maybe we should call them his own personal disbeliefs, Napoleon was far too clever a man to not realize the key role that religion plays in society. As he said, quote, "Religion is excellent stuff for keeping common people quiet." Close quote In other words, a religion he saw as simply another means of social control that an enlightened ruler like himself could manipulate and use as necessary. To give a clear idea how he use that in practice, here are a few extracts translated from Napoleon's proclamation to the Egyptians, you know, when he when he landed in Egypt and conquered. Quote, O Egyptians, you have been told that I have come to this land with the intention of eradicating your religion. But that is a clear lie. Do not believe it. I worship God, glory be to him, and respect his prophet and the great Koran. The French also are sincere Muslims. The French entered Rome and destroyed the throne of the Pope, who had also, who would always urged Christians to combat Islam. Then they marched to Malta, where they expelled the knights, who claimed that God, exalted as He, sought of them that they fight the Muslims. Close quote. That's Napoleon. I worship God, glory be to Him, and, and respect His prophet in the great Koran. The French are also sincere Muslims. The French marched to Rome and destroyed the throne of the Pope. Dot, dot, dot. That coming from the man who said if he had to choose a religion, he'd worship the sun as the universal giver of life. Just for contrast, here's a few extracts translated from Napoleon's press release to the priests when he invades northern Italy. So that one was from Egypt. Here's what he says in Italy. Quote, Persuaded that the Catholic religion is the single one able to provide true happiness to a well-ordered society, I assure you that I shall endeavor to protect it and defend it at all times and by all means. I shall consider anyone who makes the least insult to our common religion, Or to your sacred persons, he's talking to priests, as a threat to public peace, an enemy of the common good, and will punish as such, if necessary, by death. Close quote. This coming from a man who hates the priesthood and theocracy, a man who also just told the Muslims that he's a sincere Muslim, a man who said if he had to choose a religion, he'd worship the sun, This coming from a man who had just announced that he's marching to Rome to, quote, liberate the people from their long enslavement, close quote. In a few minutes, we'll just see how sincere he really was about protecting and defending Catholicism at all times and by all means. Napoleon's personal secretary explains the technique used by Napoleon, quote, His religious tolerance was a natural consequence of his philosophic spirit. Bonaparte's principle was to look upon religions as the work of men, but to respect them everywhere as a powerful engine of government. If Bonaparte spoke to, as a Muslim, it was merely in his character of a military and political chief in a Muslim country. In every country, he would have drawn up proclamations and delivered addresses on the same principle. In India, he would have been for Ali, in Tibet, for the Dalai Lama, and in China, for Confucius. Close quote, that's Napoleon's private secretary. Napoleon's principle was to look on religions as the work of men, but to respect them everywhere is a powerful engine of government. In India, who'd have been for Ali, in Tibet for the Dalai Lama, China for Confucius. We saw in Egypt, he's for Mohammed, and in Italy, he's for the, our Lord. It's interesting, parenthetically, that in the Pope's Lenten retreat earlier this year, the preacher, Cardinal Biffy, warned the Pope that the Antichrist would be, among other things, an ecumenist. Napoleon's relationship with the Jews, on the other hand, had some interesting differences. After Napoleon had captured Northern Italy, he established a new republic. It was modeled on the French Republic, the Revolutionary Republic. And then the new minister of police of the new republic actually required Cardinal Ciaramonti, soon to become Pope Pius VII, to suppress the traditional Good Friday prayer for the conversion of the unbelieving Jews, pro profitis Judais. Recently, we've done the same thing. Unfortunately, the Jews still don't have the faith, and if we really loved them, like he's commanded us to do, we'd be increasing our prayers for their conversion. We'd be increasing our prayers for their salvation. Israel Shamir, he's a convert from Judaism to Eastern Orthodoxy, so he's not quite there yet, but he's getting close, comments on this change. Quote, In the 1960s, the Western churches, that's us, removed from the liturgy of prayer, Oremus et pro profetis udeis. Let us pray for the faithless Jews that our God and Lord will remove the veil from their hearts, so that they too may acknowledge the light of thy truth, which is in our Lord, which is our Lord Jesus Christ, and be delivered from their darkness. This prayer was considered anti although it is a far cry from the Jewish prayer, Shepach Hamatha, quote, Lord, vent your fury upon Goyim. Parenthetically, Goyim in this case is a derogatory term for us. Lord, vent your fury upon Goyim, who do not know your name. Close quote. But the Jews preserved their prayer of vengeance while misled and subdued Christians dropped their prayer of mercy. Close quote. Back to Napoleon. Napoleon declared, quote, If I govern a nation of Jews, I should reestablish the Temple of Solomon. Close quote. Of course we know the general opinion of the fathers and doctors is that the Antichrist will build the temple and rule the world from Jerusalem. He actually did try to establish a nation of Jews in seventeen ninety nine while the French troops were in Palestine. Napoleon prepared and printed up a proclamation that was supposed to be released once he captured Jerusalem, but Jerusalem didn't fall to the French, thanks to the British. Napoleon's proclamation, which was never issued, declared that Palestine would be, henceforth, an independent Jewish state, 1799. In 1807, Napoleon ordered the convocation of the Great Sanhedrin. That's the ancient governing body of the Jews that had not met since the temple had been destroyed in 70 A.D., his book on the Antichrist, the late great father Augustine Lehman, uh, Father Lehman was himself a convert from Judaism, comments on this event. Quote, in the great Sanhedrin held in Paris in 1807, they, the Jewish leaders, applied the biblical title exclusively reserved to the Messiah, to Napoleon, though Napoleon was not of Jewish blood. Close quote. The Jewish estimation of Napoleon was summarized in a letter from the Austrian ambassador in Paris, the Austrian foreign minister, quote, all Jews look upon Napoleon as their Messiah, close quote. Now, this is a very clear foreshadowing. In John 5, 43, our Lord tells the Jews, I am come in the name of my father, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Now, according to the fathers and doctors of the church, St. John Chrysostom, St. Cyril, St. Augustine, the Venerable Bede, many others, this man, the man whom our Lord states will come in his own name and be accepted by the Messiah as the Jews, this man is the Antichrist. Lust for power. Napoleon is a man of whom the great Catholic historian Dr. Warren Carroll says emphatically, quote, in all history, in all history, there's no clear case of an able man consumed by lust for power. Close quote. Napoleon was clear on this. Here's Napoleon. Power is my mistress. I've worked too hard at her conquest to allow anyone to take her away from me. I love power, but it is as an artist that I love it. I love it as a musician loves his violin to draw out its sounds and chords in harmonies. Close quote. We don't have time to do any more than take a quick look at three ways in which Napoleon's lust for power played out. First, just in his portrayal of himself. It's, easily, it's easy to see in officially commissioned works of art. Typically, Napoleon is portrayed in the style of ancient Caesars as some sort of emperor god. A typical example is a medal he had struck commemorating the capture of Vienna and Pressburg in 1805. On this medal, there's a buck-naked classical figure of Hercules standing there. He's got a lion skin draped over his shoulder. He's got one hand on his hip and this other hand resting on his mighty club. And on each side, there's goddesses kneeling on each side of him, holding up the keys to the cities. But he's ignoring them as he impassively gazes off in the distance. Now, the body is Hercules, but the head, crowned with a laurel wreath, is clearly Napoleon. The most blatantly satanic example of this artwork, there's lots of it, but I'll just leave you one more. The most blatantly satanic example of this artwork has to be the blasphemous medal he had struck commemorating the meeting of the Grand Sanhed- great Sanhedrin. On this medal, Moses is kneeling down, receiving the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the law. Moses is kneeling there, receiving the two tablets of the law from Napoleon. We see a clear foreshadowing of the Antichrist there, who demand to be worshipped as a god. If a man is so arrogant as to have himself portrayed as God the Father in artwork, it's certainly no surprise, then, that his treatment of our Holy Father is almost beyond description. Here's a thumbnail sketch of the second way his lust for power played out. In February 1798, French troops under Napoleon captured Rome. Now, the French governor had ordered Napoleon to, quote, overthrow the last of the popes and take the tiara, that's that crown that the pope used to wear, from the pretended head of the universal church, close quote. Now, in this case, Napoleon sent his commands from afar. He didn't have any desire to personally lead the expedition into Rome since, as we've seen, he's clever enough to realize that the common man, he wants him to follow him, and this sort of action would provoke both the French and Italian common men, to oppose his rule. And he already had problems in the Vendee, and there were uprisings in in Italy from the common men. The French declared the Pope deposed. And in the middle of the night, five days after they invaded Rome, the French troops threw out the 80-year-old Pope. Now he's sick. He's got half-paralyzed legs. They take him, throw him into carriage, and haul him out of town. They gave him three, three days to clear town, but he said, I'm not leaving Rome or the, or, or the church, so they just loaded him up. Then they looted, uh, they started looting everything. As this carriage moves north, there are crowds of people kneeling at the sides of the road waiting for his blessing. The country people called our poor Holy Father Pius VI, quote, the prisoner of the Antichrist, close quote. He was hauled all the way over the Alps into France, and when being held in Valence, France, the Pope died. Forgiving his captors. His body was embalmed, but Napoleon didn't allow him to be buried for months. By this time, Napoleon had seized power. He seized power, complete and total power, in November of 1799. The revolutionaries actually assumed this was the end of the papacy. They called Pope Pius VI, Pius VI the last, in the belief that he was the last pope. They had some kind of snooty remark. Conclave was held in Venice, and the new pope took the name Pius VII. He's crowned with a papier-mâché tiara. That's the the crown that the popes wore until Paul VI put it aside, but they had to make it out of papier-mâché. Why? Because Napoleon's troops had stolen the real tiara. Anyway, Napoleon recognized that Vatican support for his rule would be to his advantage, and he really wanted to make the pope into sort of his own agent. So he gets a concordat that they negotiated in 1801 in order to reestablish the church in France. After the pope had already signed the concordat, then Napoleon attaches... Uh, an appendix with 77 uh, uh, different regulations that the Holy Father had already rejected, and he publishes it as if the Holy Father had uh, had approved all these things. In 1804, under under pressure, Pius VII traveled to Paris for Napoleon's coronation. Napoleon crowns himself. The French invaded the Papal States again in 1808, and this time, Pius VII excommunicated Napoleon. Think of the bravery of this Holy Father. It's just incredible. He's a captive, and he excommunicates Napoleon. Napoleon had him taken prisoner and hauled off to France and held as a captive for more than six years. During his imprisonment, the Pope was subjected to such abusive treatment that at one time they had to give him the last rites. They thought that was the end of him. They're dragging him here and there. Sometimes they held him captive in France, sometimes in in part of Italy. At one point, he's kept up day and night, night after night, day after day, and browbeaten, even by the emperor himself, until he finally signed a new and worse concordat, which he renounced when he recovered somewhat from his dazed condition. And all the abuse. By the way, this is interesting. In his captivity, while saying Mass and Pentecost in 1811, he went in an ecstasy. And levitated up as he's saying mass, and he's surrounded by the light of glory. This also happened when he was hearing mass on the feast of the Assumption in 1811, where he was kneeling at a pray-do, and all of a sudden in front of everybody, he's in this ecstasy and lifted up in the midair and surrounded by a light of glory. He, he was also given uh, the gift of miracle, miraculous healing people that he blessed. So he's doing miracles even though he's in captivity and being abused by the by the emperor. He's uh, He's doing miracles. Anyway, Napoleon actually believed he was going to reduce the Pope to his own servant and made plans to bring the Pope to live permanently in Paris, brought all the records of the Holy See up to Paris, prepared uh, like a fancy palace for him, and he's basically going to be a client. You know, the emperor's right-hand man. tell you what to do, like, uh, like what's happened in, in, the, in the Byzantine Empire. Anyway, given Napoleon's treatment of the Holy Father, it's no surprise that his treatment of the church was in the same sort of arrogant divine lawgiver mode. We'll take a quick look at the third way his power lust played out. As emperor, Napoleon declared that legislation and teaching that came from the Pope had to have the approval of the French government. So we're going to vet your stuff first, Holy Father. He required that Gallicanism and Jansenism be taught to seminarians. He imposed a single liturgy on all of France. He demanded that all religious magazines and papers be published in just one journal, and that could only be published under police surveillance. All this stuff sounds just like communist China. He demanded that only one catechism be used for the whole empire, in which Napoleon is called, quote, God's image on earth, close quote, and, quote, the Lord's anointed, close quote. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is the Messiah, and the Greek word is the Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised to find out that Napoleon wrote those lines himself. St. Paul says the Antichrist that he would, quote, the man of sin, showing himself as if he were God, close quote. After Napoleon fell, the Pope gave refuge to his family and wrote letters urging leniency and treatment for Napoleon. As for Napoleon himself, the British Navy took him prisoner because the original plan was to drop him off in Philadelphia or Boston. Thanks be to God, the British Navy grabbed him and banished him to the most isolated spot on the known earth, the island of St. Helena in the South Atlantic. And there, one of the most deadly enemies the Catholic Church has ever faced, petitioned. His former prisoner, Pius VII, has sent him a priest to help him die. Quote, The Pope sent a young priest who assisted the fallen emperor until his death in May 1821. It came as a very particular consolation for Pius to know, from trustworthy accounts, that Napoleon had died a Catholic death. Close quote. The mercy of God. Before we close, there's one other interesting thing we should take a quick glance at. At the height of his glory, Napoleon arrogantly said, quote, what does the Pope mean by the threat of excommunicating me? Does he suppose the arms will fall from the hands of my soldiers? Close quote. And yet in that terrible suffering brought on by the famine and the cold during the retreat from Moscow, the arms literally fell from the hands of his soldiers as they staggered along. This is a campaign in which Napoleon lost more than 500,000 men. It's the greatest military disaster in all history. One more curious event regarding the Tsar, Tsar Alexander Alexander I. This is the Tsar that fought Napoleon and supported the Holy Father and the Catholic Church. Quote, I'll just edit out the names because it's not important. The Tsar's aide-de-camp and personal friend was sent to Rome for the express purpose of discussing with the Pope the conversion of Alexander I and the return of Russia to Catholicism. While his friend was in Rome, the Tsar died. But once back in St. Petersburg, he learned that the Tsar had, had secretly abjured his schism shortly before his death. Close quote. In the defeat of Napoleon and bringing peace to this world that's racked by apostasy and war, Russia played a key role. There's a type of conversion of Russia in its head. It's an obscure foreshadowing in some way of the prophecy of Our Lady of Fatima but at best we're only left in a more luminous darkness. Let's close. We've taken a quick look at a ruthless emperor God, a man determined to conquer the world, a man recognized by Jews of his time as the Messiah, a man who relentlessly persecuted and tried to dominate the church in her visible head, a man who said of himself, a man such as I am cares little for the life of a million men. What I did is immense what i decided to do and what i projected were still more so i should have conquered the world what was his legacy quote over 2 million people had died as a direct consequence of bonaparte's campaigns many more through poverty and disease and undernourishment countless villages had been burned in the path of advancing and retreating armies Almost every capital in Europe had been occupied, some like Vienna, Dresden, Berlin, and Madrid, more than once. Moscow had been put to the torch. Copenhagen had been bombarded. The wars set back the economic life of Europe for a generation. They made men behave like beasts and worse. Throughout Europe, the standards of human conduct declined as men and women and their growing children learned to live brutally. In human terms, its devastation was not to find its equal until the totalitarian regimes of Hitler and Stalin in 20th century Europe, close quote. Napoleon said, A man such as I am cares little for the life of a million men. What I did is immense. What I decided to do and what I projected was still more so. I should have conquered the world. But our Lord says, What to it profit a man if he gain the whole world? suffer the loss of his own soul. What exchange shall a man give for his soul?